Welcome to the Library Love Fest podcast, brought to you by HarperCollins Publishers. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Check it out. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Brought to you by Library Love Hi, it's Lainey from the Library Marketing Team, and we're here for another episode of Editors Unedited, and today we're joined by Jessica Williams, so I'm going to let her take it away. Hi, my name is Jessica Williams, and I'm a senior editor with the William Morrow Group, and I am going to be speaking today with Bridget Collins, who has written The Binding, which will be out in April 2019. So, uh, Bridget, why don't you sort of give us a little brief overview of what The Binding is in terms of the story. Sure, yeah, so um, The Binding is is set in a sort of Victorian 19th century England, um, and it's about a young man, um, Emmett Farmer, who um, he's recovering from this mysterious illness, um, and he doesn't doesn't know know, what's happened to him, and um, he's asked to, to go away to become an apprentice to a bookbinder. And he, he realizes that his parents, you know, there's obviously something a bit kind of mysterious and taboo about books, but he doesn't exactly know what. Um, but they, they say he has to go because they're scared of the bookbinder and, you know, they're, they're worried that she'll curse him. And, and so he, he goes away and slowly he becomes aware that books are actually people's memories. So basically if something terrible happens to you and you feel like you can't live your life remembering it, then you go to a binder and they take the memory away and they put it in a book um, and you never remember it again. Um, unless, of course, the book is destroyed. So it's it's really, it's a book about kind of memory and, and identity and sort of how memory makes you who you are. Um, and also, I think, without wanting to give anything too much away, it, it's also a love story. So it's, it's shamelessly romantic as well. <laughs> Which I really love about it. So before we go too far, I definitely want to talk about your inspiration since it's such a creative concept. But why don't we talk about your experience as a writer? Obviously, you had written YA novels, but this was your first adult novel. So, and I know when you said, like, as you were writing it, you weren't thinking about who it was for or, like, do you want to talk a little bit about the experience of sending the book to your agent and it being submitted in the UK and what that was like for you? And then I can sort of weigh in on what it was like for me on the acquisition side. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, as you say, I'd, I'd written books for teenagers um, and I'd written, I think I've got seven published. And, and what had happened was that I'd come to the end of a multi-book contract just as my editor left. Bloomsbury, which was my, my publisher. And so I was sort of in this very odd place where I was trying to think of new ideas and, and sending them off um, to my children's agent. And she was saying, yes, it's a great idea, but it's not commercial. We need something commercial. Um, so I came up with all these ideas. And, and in the end, I got to the stage where I just, I could hardly write anything. I was so, you know, I was kind of so stuck and second guessing myself that I, I couldn't get anywhere. And, and I sort of said to myself, you know what, I'm, I'm just going to stop thinking about all of that and I'm just going to write the book that I want to write and and so when I when I wrote it I I think I sort of knew that it wasn't you know it wasn't like my teenage books but it also I think wasn't completely an adult book I was I was not thinking about the market at all 
Um, and so when I'd written it, I, I sent it off to my agency and I sent it simultaneously to um, Sarah, my adult agent, whom I'd worked with a bit before, and to Jody, who is my children's agent, and kind of waited to see which one of them got back to me. And it was a great moment because Sarah sort of called me and said, right, this is what you need to do to it, and sort of talked to me for 10 minutes. And I, I had to stop her and say, what? So, so you want it then? <laughs> she was like, yes, yes, I do. <laughs> So that was great. So I, and then in, in the second draft, obviously, I, you, you know, I had to think much more about it being an adult book. And a lot of that, I think, was about kind of putting space around it and, and changing the pacing and making it, you know, I, I hope it's still very narrative driven. But there's a kind of, I guess there's more kind of subtlety in it than, than there was the first time round. So it was a big auction in the UK. It was this hotly contested eight-way auction. I'm assuming it happened very quickly after the manuscript was submitted. Yeah, it was a complete whirlwind. I mean, I was really lucky, actually, because the week she submitted it, I was in a play, so I kind of didn't really have much time to... I mean, I didn't have much time to talk to her, let alone think about the book. So she kind of called me and said, you know, I'm setting up a few meetings. You know, is, is that okay? And I was like, oh, well, that's. And then it turned into like eight to ten meetings. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I said, oh, so, so you think it'll it'll probably be published then? And she's like, yes, I, I think it'll probably be published. Well, on my and side, then, you know, I was on vacation supposedly, right? Mm-hmm. And I had this novel on submission from the U.S. agent, who I really love, and the pitch sounded amazing, obviously. Um, and so I was. That, that said, as editors, I think when we try to go on vacation, we're always trying to read books that are actually published. That's like the joy yeah. of going on vacation. You like try to pick your, you know, from the thousand TBR pile that you have next to your bedside, like the three books or one book you're going to try to read while you're on vacation. So then I'm hearing from the U.S. agent and from Harper UK about how much they're loving this book. So then I started reading it actually by the pool in Florida while I was visiting my in-laws. <laughs> but then yeah. it turned out to be the perfect escapist poolside reading. And so as I was, like, laying by the pool reading your book, I was also emailing with the U.S. agent being like, okay, I really love this. I'm on vacation, but just, you know, feel free to keep contacting me constantly about what's happening. Because we came on um, and preempted it very quickly after you signed up with Harper UK. Mm. And, and it, was, it was wonderful, really, because I was, you know, when it got to the last round of the auction in the U.K., you know, actually... Borough Press weren't, you know, HarperCollins weren't quite the highest bid. And so I had that moment of, you know, I'm really in love with them. And, you know, the other people are great, too. And sort of making that decision and, and finally, you know, going with my heart and, and not even really thinking about the U.S. at that stage, because I still thought it was going to go to auction anyway. Mm-hmm. So it was, you know, it, it felt like it was kind of meant to be that I went to, to HarperCollins in, in the U.K. And then, of course, I think that you know that that made things easier to to go with you in in the U.S. after the preempt. So it was, yeah, it, <laughs> it was. I mean, a lot of a lot of what's been great about the book is feeling like, you know, I've just been going with my gut instinct, like writing it and and then choosing a publisher. It, you know, it's, it's felt like it's incredibly easy and you know, like the right thing is sort of happening. Does that make any sense? Yeah, absolutely. Well, and because we are doing this with a sister company, we've sort of worked together the whole way. I mean, our covers are similar. We edited the book together. Um, so moving to the editorial process, obviously, so Susie and I would present our notes to you at, in this, at the same time. And yeah. I felt like... I felt like we were sort of, I didn't think there were that many surprises or big surprises, but what was it like for you on the receiving end as the author? 
I think it was fine, actually. I mean, the, the great thing about an auction and, and also just having those meetings is that you kind of get a sense of where editors are coming from before you, you choose which way to, to go. So, you know, I think when when I was talking to editors who had really weird ideas, then I was just like, yeah, okay, <laughs> maybe this isn't going to work. So, you know, it was it was great. And obviously I'd spoken to you and, and Susie before I made those decisions. So, you know, I kind of knew that we were all on the same page about where we wanted it to be. And, you know, so... So yeah, there weren't any any bad surprises. There's always a, a kind of moment when you get the, the notes and somebody points out all your foibles and the things that you do too much of. <laughs> you know, like I remember Susie saying, "You do realise you mention like hands three times <laughs> a page." <laughs> so there's, there's all that kind of stuff. But and then you do the the document great. search and you realise just how frequently you were doing it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's it's very you know. It's, kind of seeing all that get mirrored back to you. So I remember our first phone call during that auction process when you told me about your inspiration story. I th- I just thought it was such an incredibly compelling and interesting way to conceptualize a novel. Do you want to sort of speak to that time in your life and what you were doing? Yeah, so I mean, it, it was a combination of things. So the first thing was that I was doing this book binding class, which I'd started basically as a way to get away from writing and, and do something completely different, which is rather ironic, really. Um, but at the same time, I was working as a listening volunteer for the Samaritans, which I, I think you have similar things in the U.S., but I'm not sure you, you have the actual Samaritans. Yeah, so do you want right? to speak a little bit? Uh, would it be sort of like a hotline? Yeah, exactly. So it's it's for people who are upset or distressed or, or just have something that they need to talk through. And so they'll call this number and, and they'll talk to somebody, you know, just who's trained, but, you know, just a, a volunteer. And so, you know, as a volunteer, you talk to people and you kind of, you know, sometimes you're talking them through stuff and helping them see the way forward. And sometimes you're just kind of holding their emotions for them and, and making them feel like they've been heard and, and kind of validated. So it's an immense privilege. It's a really lovely thing to do, and you know, you talk to people who are immensely courageous. But every so often, you would speak to somebody who you felt that they got stuck, that they were sort of telling some sort of narrative over and over and over again, and and then they'd sort of ended up defining themselves either as somebody who had done something dreadful or somebody who was the victim of something dreadful, and. You know, and, and you, it was a very uncomfortable thing to do because by listening to it, you felt that they, you were helping them kind of reinforce that. And so I started to to wonder, you know, not, not seriously, but I kind of thought, you know, what would it be like if I could just reach out and take that memory away from you? You know, what, what would it do um, and what would it look like and would I want to do it? So it was, it was really the, the combination of those two things, I think. Um, and was yeah, there like and, and, an original moment where you started to envision that as the starting point of a novel? Um, there's not a kind of eureka moment that I remember, but I, I think I think sort of during bookbinding classes, that, that you know, there's a lot of stuff like sewing books or something where you're, you know, the, the front of your mind is sort of on that, and then the back of your mind is just kind of ticking over and, and thinking about stories. So I, I guess it was probably then, but. It's funny, I don't actually really remember the, you know, kind of sitting down to start the book. Um, but I, I do... You yeah, were in I, I a remember. trance of your own, just like in the book. Yeah, right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
So let's sort of kind of dive into the world of the novel a little bit. Obviously, we have to be careful because we don't want to give anything away, and there are tons of yeah. twists and turns. Like, I feel like we can only really talk about Emmett Farmer as, <laughs> as the, and the other characters I don't really want to touch on too much because I don't want to give anything away. Um, so let's sort of start with, so this is a sort of historical fantasy, um, but at no point do you state when the novel is set, although you alluded to it earlier, and there are clues dropped throughout that lead the reader to believe this is 19th century England. Can you speak yep. a little bit to your thought process regarding the setting? Could the story have been set elsewhere in a more contemporary or even futuristic period? And what drew you to writing this novel as a historical fantasy? Yeah, I, I think it... It certainly could work um, in in a contemporary or a futuristic um, setting because I think you know in some ways just the important thing is the mechanism of, of taking the memories away and sort of what that does to people and relationships and I think that's you know that's kind of universal and, and that would work in, in any setting really I think for me because part of the inspiration was doing the bookbinding myself one of the things I really love about bookbinding is that it hasn't changed. You know, and our, our teacher would say to us, you know, if, if a Victorian bookbinder walked into the bindery now, he, you know, because it probably would be a he, would know what to do, you know, that they could sit down with you and, and be doing all, all the same things. And so that was, that was something that just really appealed to me. The physicality of it? Yeah, yeah, and... and when you really yeah. dive into this in the, t in the novel, I mean, you talk about, you know, kind of sewing the leather and the gold and like the foil and all of the various, the, this, there's one green silk book, you know, and using the materials to kind of physically construct these books, which essentially no one is ever supposed to read. Yeah, exactly. And I think, I think was it you that kind of said, why, why do they do that? Yes, I was like, why, why are the books so beautiful if they're just hidden in this vault? <laughs> I was just questioning the mythology of the binding world. Um, and, you know, you were like, because there's still these valued, cherished things. So it was kind of because Sarah cares about her craft. Well, obviously, I just sort of mentioned a character that we haven't talked about yet. So we'll, we'll get to her. Um, so Obviously, as we just said, clearly this is not Victorian England because it's a fantasy, right? And this, yeah, you know, yeah. technically this is sort of a magical world. Um, but you also, in the binding, hint at an even older, almost medieval culture. For instance, there's the widespread belief that binders are almost or are witches and are sort of yeah, casting absolutely. spells yeah. and have magical powers. Um, in that sense, it might almost be like an alternate history in some ways because you've sort of mashed up various elements from different time periods can you tell us a yeah, bit exactly. more about yeah. your research process and how you built the world one thing that really fascinated me was how you talk about the history of the crusades except in this world the, the crusades was not about religion it was about binding so do you want to talk a little bit about the invention of binding and then sort of how you decided to kind of mash up these historical details yeah, definitely. Um, so I think in, in my head, it's sort of more or less 1890, which, you know, I kind of, you know, I don't think it really matters for the reader, but for me, it was important to know sort of more or less so that so that I knew things like, you know, like the, what technology they should have. And, and also I wanted to be, you know, I had to do quite a lot of research about Emmett as a farmer. 
and sort of so I have to do all this research about sort of you know what is he doing when and when do you have to dig the turnips and when do you have to slaughter the pigs <laughs> all, all that kind of thing and one of the most fruitful veins of, of research I found was about a, a, a farm um, it, it, well it's a, a sort of modern farm where they went back to the 1890s and, and so that was really really useful so yeah I think it is you know, I think it's, it's not exactly then, but it's sort of more or less that. But when I was working on the second draft, my agent sort of said to me, look, I, you know, this is, this is great, but I don't think you've thought it through yet. You know, I want to know much more detail about the world. I want to know sort of what their daily lives are like. And, I, you know, if, if binding is this thing that you say it is, what are the implications? And she said, well, you know, have you thought about, you know, tax? And you know who's in charge? How, what, what are the what do the hierarchies look like in this society? Oh yeah, do you want to speak to the tax a little bit? And I'd love if you no. like kind of give a little recap of the Crusades. Yeah. So what what I did was um, the Crusades. I think I was inspired by like the Luddites, who were obviously earlier, but but I wanted that kind of sense of you know that it's happening because you know there's there's that very uneasy thing with the growth of capitalism and people are poor and and you know so it's not it's not the crusades in the sense of you know it's not like the the crusade in our history where it's all about kind of going off and you know fighting um, battles back Jerusalem, you know? yeah. it's, it's not a religious thing but it's it's kind of their name for trying to scapegoat binders because of what's happening socially um but, but what I did, you know, when, when Sarah said, you know, what you need to do is, is research, and I thought, well, I don't know how to do this, because obviously I'm, I'm making it all up, so how, how does that work? So what I actually did was write myself a sort of, it, it was a kind of mock textbook, as if it was, you know, a binder in this world, sort of, you know, recapping the history of binding. And so it was, I sort of went through British history, which obviously highlighted all the bits of British history I was really shaky on, and, and kind of tried to fit the, you know, binding into that. So there were things like, you know, with, with the witch trials in um, the 16th century, you know, I kind of thought, well, that, that would be, those would be binding trials. Those would mm -hmm. be, you know, those. So, and then things like, um, in the, the 18th century where they were kind of regulating gin and alcohol and things like that. And I thought, yes, that, that would also be something. So, so in the, the book, there's a kind of joke about, you know, the, the sale of Bindings Act in 1750, which is actually when they legalized gin. Um, so it was, it was fun kind of trying to find all those parallels and, and explore them and, and kind of make it much more of a coherent sense of, you know, how, how the world was working. And why did you want to position binding as almost a, a threat to um, I what think, I mean, I guess, would be kind of culture and society? Yeah, I think because it, it does occupy that place where it's, I guess it is magical, but, you know, so, so it's, it's, it's very much a sort of marginal activity. And I think it also has a lot of parallels with medicine. So for somebody like Seredith, you know, kind of living out on the marshes, healing people, but in this mysterious way that people don't understand, you know, I think that's, the, you know, it's a sort of cunning man or cunning woman um, position where, mm -hmm. where people sort of need you, but, but also they really don't like you because they're scared. Yeah, and yeah. So it, was, it was those parallels, I think. And, and also because in the book, 
you know, binding is a really ambivalent thing. That there are moments where you think, yeah, okay, you know, fair enough, somebody needs this. But a lot of the time, the book is exploring the ways in which it's, you know, either exploitative or destructive. You know, that it's it's a way of making money, or it's a way of silencing people, or it's it's a way of kind of reducing people somehow. Yeah. Um, well, now that yeah. you've sort of gone to Serdith, I'd love to talk more about her. Um, obviously, the whole novel has such incredible atmosphere and imagery, but I have to say, I think my favorite setting is actually Serdith's bindery. And that's where Emmett first begins to learn the trade and the history of binding, which is also where we as the reader are learning those things. Um, but honestly, I felt like you could write an entire prequel just focused on Serdith and set in this world. So how did you come up with this setting and how much real historical detail did you include? And do you have a personal favorite setting in the novel? Um, I think my, my favorite is that is, is the bindery on yeah, the marshes as well. And I, think, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's because a lot of it is wish fulfillment, you know, because I was sort of imagining this isolated, beautiful place on the marshes where, where they can just kind of bind books. And also <laughs> have magical powers. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think it's it's really interesting because it's sort of, you know, it's, it's a place of healing for, for Emmett, really, that it's, you know, he's very isolated and, and in some ways it's sinister because he doesn't know what, what's going on. But it's there that he has this kind of peace and, and discovers who he is. And I, I suppose in some ways, you know, there are parallels with writing that, that, you know, I dream of being somewhere where all I have to do is write. And I kind of know that I would feel like Emmett in that I would, you know, I would feel lonely and, and conflicted about being there, but also that the dream is there. Yeah. And sort of yeah. imagining this beautiful place was, was great fun. Well, so we're somewhat limited in terms of, as I said, like the characters we can discuss. So let's talk about Emmett for a bit. Um, yeah. He, in many ways, acts as our way into the world and as our main character. When we first meet him, as you mentioned, he's recovering from a mysterious illness that has left him questioning his place in the world and his role in the family since he can no long, he's no longer strong enough to keep up on the family farm. In the opening chapter, his parents receive a letter from Serdith summoning him to become a bookbinder's apprentice. And both he and his parents are horrified by this. And Emmett recalls an earlier experience when they found him reading a book at the Wakening Fair. I always really loved that detail. Can you tell us a bit more about this scene and the meaning of Emmett's memory? And like, speak to your creation of him as a character. Did he come to you fully formed? Were there any particular themes you wanted to explore through him? I know this is a lot of questions. So maybe why don't we start with your creation of him and then that in that opening chapter, the meaning of that memory where he recalls his first time reading a book. I think at the beginning, Emmett, is, he's almost kind of a blank slate. He's, he's had this mysterious illness. And so he's really kind of... You know, his defining characteristic almost is what he doesn't know. So he's, you know, as he discovers, the reader discovers. So he's quite sort of transparent and he's quite, you know, he's he knows he's afraid. He knows that he's confused, but he doesn't really know what he wants. So he's, he's very much, you know, he's quite a passive character to start with. And it's only as he begins to discover who he is and what he wants that he, he has more agency. So I think it... You know, I, I sort of knew, you know, I knew how the plot was going to work. So I knew the kind of shape of his awakening and, and where that was going to go. But in terms of thinking of him as a character, you know, I, I was kind of discovering him as, as he is, really, as I went along. 
and yeah, I think I think the scene where he reads the book at, or he he buys the book at Wakening Fair and he brings it home and he kind of gets absorbed into it, and it's it's sort of one of those moments from childhood where something happens and you realise that it was bad and shameful and you don't know why. And so it serves a function at the beginning of the book because it's obviously introducing the reader to the idea that books are dangerous and that you shouldn't, you know, they're not to be trusted. And yet, you know, at, at that stage, the reader obviously doesn't know why. But I also wanted to, to kind of create that sense of, you know, that he feels something's wrong with him. You know, that, and, and of course, you know, as the book goes on, you realise that the reason he was so drawn into it is, is because he's a binder, you know, that he's innately a binder himself. Yeah, because he's so immediately he drawn into the world, and it's as if he's living through the character he's reading about in the book, which is essentially yeah. a binding of someone else's memories. Yeah, yeah, so he gets drawn into that memory, and then he's kind of only just jolted out of it by his father hitting him, basically. And so, you know, and, and then he, he kind of says that he goes through the rest of his adolescence sort of holding that memory, and because he doesn't understand it, he's like, well, I did something, you know, there is something wrong with me, and I don't know what it is. And, and it was kind of, I felt like it was important for the development of the character just, just to have that, and, and for reasons that become clear later as well, I think that kind of also speaks to other aspects of his character and, and the plot. Yeah. Yeah, so we're going to get to some of the themes um, in a little bit, but I want to talk about the structure, which is really interesting, and in that it's the way you structured the novel. It's non-chronological and divided into three distinct parts, um, yeah. which I think really creates incredible narrative tension, because just as you mentioned, Emmett is on this desperate search to uncover the truth about who he is and what happened to him and, and his own memories. The reader is also desperate to solve this mystery as well. How did you come to structure the novel in this way? Did you know from the start of the writing process? Um, um, yeah, sorry. <laughs> there's the moment which we do mention in the copy when Emmett finds the book with his own name on it, which then the reader is transported as he is into his own book. And that's where we mm. really get that large reveal, which takes up a sort of the, the midpoint of the novel. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'd, why don't you kind of go from the, the beginning in terms of how you decided to structure it this way? I think... I always knew that the first two sections were going to work like that, that, you know, that the first section would be driven by Emmett sort of discovering what binding is and who he is and sort of, and then, you know, end with, with that sort of climactic moment of realizing that there's this whole other, other life that he's forgotten. And then I knew that the middle section would be that life and, and would be kind of revealing what it was that, that had taken him to where he, you know, where he started. The, the third section, I actually didn't know. And I can remember, I mean, I, I don't know what I was planning to do. This is, <laughs> I can remember the moment of thinking, oh, of course, that's what I should do, you know, what I need to do, you know. But <laughs> I must have had a plan before that, which I can't remember what it was. So it was obviously not a very good idea. But I'm, I'm really glad that I, you know, that I changed my mind because I think... What it does is mean that, you know, every section of the novel is driven by a different sort of suspense. It's so almost it's reinventing point. itself as you read. Yeah, I think so. And, and it also, you know, because it's about, you know, it's sort of stories within stories and books within books and the sort of, you know, basically the, the middle section is Emmett's book pretty much. Yeah, and, and then, reading that middle section, which is Emmett books, I felt like was a 
a really clear commentary. I'm not sure if this was intentional on how fiction works in terms of how we're completely absorbed into his life story while it's within this book. Gosh, that, that makes it sound cleverer than I realized. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, yes, yes, I'll, I'll go with yes, that was what it was. Intentional, exactly. completely <laughs> intentional. Um, obviously, the power of books pops up regularly in fiction. I mean, I just watched the, you know, the Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Society movie. Um, yeah. And then there's like Marcus Suzak's The Book Thief, the list goes on. But you're using this theme in a way I've never seen before. Yes, books have great power in the binding as a place for storing memories, sometimes unwanted, sometimes cherished, and for trauma and terrible secrets. And books are regarded as almost evil in this world, especially since the act of binding has been corrupted by the pursuit of power and wealth. At best, I think binding exists in a sort of moral gray area in the novel. So what do you as the author think that readers are supposed to make of the fact that Emmett, who is essentially our hero, is referred to as a binder born? And do you view the process as inherently good or bad, or can it ever be necessary? I think one of the things that's sort of interesting about it being a book about books is that books in the binding are acting as a metaphor for other things. Like, I, I don't think it is. I mean, obviously, in some ways, it's a book about books, but it's not really a book about fictions. So bindings in in the binding are, like, I think there were a series of things that I kind of thought that, you know, there were aspects of, of things that sort of worked as, sorry, I'm not expressing this very well. I think in, in the binding, there are, there are different aspects of things which key into the idea of, of how books work in that world. So you've got, for example, when I was thinking about it, I was thinking about drugs and I was thinking about medicine and I was thinking about pornography. And so there are a lot of different aspects and the ambivalence of, of books in the binding is to do with the fact that it's, it's immensely powerful and the power you know, can be used well, but because of the nature of the society, it's it actually it's, it's abused more often than it's than it's used properly. One of the scenes so, I always really loved was when Emmett is in town and he encounters that woman who has sold so many of her memories because she's poor that she's yeah. barely a human being anymore. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I I think it's. When I sort of started writing the book, I mean, I, I knew that because of the, the nature of the plot, I knew that Emmett's own binding would have to be something that shouldn't have happened because I knew that, I, I knew I wanted a happy ending. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, I knew I wanted to focus on something, you know, that, that was kind of a, a misadventure, if you like. But as I went through the book, I became more and more aware of the, the different ways in which binding could be exploited. So it starts with, with Seredith, who is actually doing something generally worthwhile and, and is basically being a doctor. And it, she's sort of amputating people's memories. And, and keeping you know, them safe amput- for them. I mean, she even guards the bindery with her own life. Yes, exactly, yes. So it's, you know, it, as with all medicine, you know, if you need to do it, then you absolutely have to do it and nobody questions that it's the right thing. It's only when you have that moment where you realize people are doing it for reasons completely unrelated, you know, for unethical reasons, 
and then you think, oh, okay, this is actually horrifying. And, and so I wanted to kind of explore that, that gray area where you have something that actually you should do sometimes, but only very rarely. And then it's become an industry. And that's, that's kind of shocking, I think. Well, you have the binders in town who are, you know, men who are seeking wealth, who have been selling bindings on yeah, sort of yeah. what is like the black market. Um, do you also want to speak to what I thought was a very clever introduction of fiction in this world, which are essentially trying to rip off the bindings? Yes. It was sort of a, just a joke, really, that I kind of imagined that after a while, if, if, this, you know, if you have this flourishing industry where you're selling people stories, then sooner or later somebody will realize that you could just copy them out. Well, yeah, if there's and a then... market for it, of course the thing will grow to exist. <laughs> Yeah, and, and so one of the characters sort of makes a very contemptuous um, quip about the kind of person who would want to do that, you know, which was sort of a joke at my own expense. And, and they also, like, treat them as if they're, like, second-rate bindings, fictional stories. Yeah, and, and I think it's, it's also interesting to think about a world in which fictional narratives don't exist because there's so much of value that happens you know, with when you have a flourishing fiction market and readers and, you know, there's so much space to explore the, the dark sides of people's stories without having the responsibility of knowing that it's true. Yeah. And so, you know, one of the horrifying things about the bind, about bindings is, is that they are true. So you don't have that sort of freedom to have the empathy and to engage with it at that level and still walk away you know, without feeling that you've, you know, you've been voyeuristic or that you've, you've hurt somebody just by reading it. Well, which is why, I mean, Sarah stands so firmly on the point that you're never supposed to read the bindings or release the bindings or burn one, which is how the memories will be released. Um, yeah. And so that's why, for instance, when Emmett is reading the book at the Awakening Fair, his parents, you know, end up burying it so no one can ever find it. Yeah. And yeah. so when you were sort of envisioning this idea, I mean, I agree that it's incredibly voyeuristic. I mean, there's even a character in the novel who purposely binds up characters he has traumatized so he can then read yeah. about that trauma from their perspective, mm. which is horrific. Um, yeah. But did you have any contemporary parallels in mind when you were envisioning the binding process and the way it was corrupted and the way it was used? I... It's funny, I've been asked that before and I, I didn't consciously. I think I was thinking sort of generally about human nature and kind of the fact that as soon as you have something of value, then there will be people who take it and twist it. And I, I think maybe the book is quite sort of anti-capitalist that I, you know, I think, well, in this sort of society where it's all about the money, you know, then, then you get people stealing people's lives and and I think there are, there are also parallels with prostitution obviously with um, the character you mentioned before where she's kind of she's been bound so many times she doesn't know who she is and, and there's that sort of stock Victorian character of the fallen woman and so it's you know I guess there is that sense of, of people you know giving away something which should be kind of vital and sacred and has become completely debased but I, I didn't you know I People have sort of asked me, you know, have you, did you think about sort of misery memoirs and things like that? And I, I certainly I didn't at, at that stage, no. 
I think most of us can, and obviously you can, because um, as you were speaking to your time as a Samaritan, relate to this desire to forget a painful memory or trauma or to have it removed so we can sort of live on without it defining us in so many ways. Yet yeah. in, in the novel, obviously, the characters do not seem to recover in the way we might think, um, which makes us feel like their relation, their, our relationship to our own memories is... It's not something that can be so easily sort of incised or taken away from us or removed. Um, so I wonder if your relationship to the binding process changed as you were writing. And also, if binding was a real thing in the world, do you think most people would be tempted to submit to one? And would you? I think, I think one of the things I was thinking about when I was writing it is a sort of very modern discomfort with feeling negative emotions. So, you know, I think with, when I was doing the work for the Samaritans, I think you, you got a sense that when people were unhappy, they felt like they weren't allowed to be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that, that sort of, you know, that contributed to their distress. Not only were they upset about something, they were upset about being upset about it. And so I think, I, I suspect that if binding existed, there would be a lot of pressure on people to, to go for it because people don't you know we don't want to experience discomfort we we want to kind of get rid of it and we feel like we ought to be able to we feel kind of entitled to to have just the happy emotions so I, at the same time i think you know obviously i got the idea because there were moments where i thought yes okay you know if i could do this for you i would or, or would i um <laughs> maybe maybe i would and so i i, I wouldn't categorically say you know, that, that it would be a bad thing. But I think any kind of any kind of refusal to sit with the darkness of humanity makes us less human. <laughs> that sounds, um, yeah, I'm, I'm probably sounding pretentious, but I, I feel like, you know, we need to feel those things. And when I was thinking about it and, and somebody said, would you ever be bound? And I thought, well, you know, it's not the grief or the sadness, it's the kind of embarrassment that I would want to get rid of. And there's actually a character in the novel who just can't say the right thing. He's kind of a, a social liability and he sort of, you know, makes jokes that nobody laughs at and sort of congratulates people on being pregnant when they're not and, and all sorts <laughs> of things. And, and every every month he kind of goes and, and gets himself bound so that he can just forget and, and start again. All of his embarrassing uh, social encounters. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> And I, and I sort of identify with that, and I kind of think, well, that's the sort of thing that I, I would do if I could. And then I think, well, you know, the reason I forgive other people for being tactless is because I've been there, you know, and, and if you don't have, you know, those memories, then, then you'll just be like, well, you know. I'm a, what, what I'm a great <laughs> social conversationalist. You'd never learn, right, from those mistakes if you didn't remember having made them. Exactly, yeah. So, you know, if, if it's all... If you, if you used it to kind of preserve your illusions about the sort of person you were, then, then actually that wouldn't be at all healthy either. Which in many ways is how social media works. Yes, that's true, actually. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Being, being allowed to curate your, your existence life is, yeah. is a really dangerous yeah. thing. Yeah. yeah, I hadn't thought about that, but that's absolutely true. Yeah. Well, I think um, that probably gives listeners a really good, I hope anyways, sort of overview of what the binding is, what its themes are, um, sort of how the world works. And Lainey, do you have any sort of final thoughts or questions for Bridget before we sign off? 
I just wanted to say that was a really great conversation, you guys. Um, thanks for braving the, the big time difference to call in. And this has been a conversation between Bridget Collins, author of The Binding, out in April, and her editor at William Morrow, Jessica Williams. Thank you. Thank you, Bridget. Thank you very much. Thank you.